Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Earlier this year, there was a big celebration at a park in Uganda's capital city, Kampala. It lasted more than three hours. There were speeches from dignitaries, business executives, and religious leaders. We thank you for this historical gathering of today. And there were dance performances. And the main reason for all of this pomp and circumstance was that after years of work, four oil companies, the French oil and gas company Total Energies, the Chinese state oil company Sinuk, and the national oil companies of Tanzania and Uganda, they had all come together and finally reached an agreement to develop Uganda's oil fields and build what's known as the East African Crude Oil Pipeline, or ECOP for short. For me, today is definitely a day of happiness. This project is a very important one. We are confident that Uganda and the United Republic of Tanzania will benefit from this project and the proceeds from the industry will contribute to eradication of poverty and create lasting value to society. This is going to be the world's longest heated pipeline running from Uganda through Tanzania and to the coast. That's Leslie Hook. She's the natural resources editor for the FT. And the Oil is going to come out of the ground in a couple of different places. Uh, there's two main developments uh, in the western side of Uganda. And then the pipeline will go through Uganda, just below the bottom of Lake Victoria, uh, through Tanzania and, and to the coast. And it's a really big project and it's really significant because it will turn Uganda into an oil producing country and an oil exporting country for the very first time. The Ugandan and Tanzanian governments are thrilled about it. They see it as a way to finally bring their economies into the 21st century with nearby access to oil and gas. On the other hand, environmental activists are worried. Plans for the pipeline include running through a national park in Uganda and displacing local people from their homes. One environmental campaigner told Leslie that it's, quote, really the worst project that you could imagine, unquote the risk of oil spills, the uh, disruption posed by construction, having heavy equipment uh, are really significant. And so you've seen kind of a, a coalition of environmental groups that are really trying to call out this project, expose the impact that it's having, and they're trying to stop it. In fact, Leslie found that some environmentalists are taking a new approach to fighting this oil project. The project is expected to cost $10 billion, and the companies behind it are still looking for funding from external parties to make that happen. And this has opened up a new window for environmental activists to focus their campaigns. So rather than just placing pressure on the companies in charge of building the pipeline, they're putting pressure on financial institutions. 
They're trying to convince these financial institutions that they shouldn't provide these oil companies with the funding and insurance that they need to pull off the project. So if you think of, you know, some of the iconic environmental campaigns of the past, like in the 1970s, you had anti-whaling campaigners and they're on boats and there's these really iconic photographs. And that campaign was really effective. You know, whaling did get banned in the 1980s. And I think of this as like a modern day equivalent. This is a new approach and it's an idea, the idea of focusing on financial institutions. This idea is really gaining a lot of traction. This tactic is one that could impact not only ECOP over the next few years, but it could also lay out a blueprint for environmental activists targeting other fossil fuel projects in the future. I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. On this week's episode of Behind the Money, how environmental activists are targeting banks and insurers to fight the construction of an oil pipeline in Africa. For decades, the possibility of extracting oil from the earth in Uganda has been there. Just out of reach. So in this part of western Uganda, oil seepages were actually observed on the ground more than a century ago. And geologists could see the oil at the surface, seemed like there was something there, but no one could really find the deposit and determine whether there was a reserve uh, that would be economic to produce, to pump out of the ground. The president of Uganda, Yuweri Museveni, has been in power since the 1980s, and he's had his sights set on this for a long time. He wanted to understand what was the potential of Uganda to produce oil, uh, to sell oil, and to export it. Finally, in 2006, after drilling many test wells, a formal oil discovery was made, a place where they could drill and access oil. But still, there have been some delays. So even though this oil was discovered in 2006, it's taken a long time to get these projects going because of the huge environmental risks involved and the environmental impact assessments that were done took years. One part of the oil project is set to be built inside what many consider to be the crown jewel of Uganda's park system, Murchison Falls National Park. It's two and a half times the size of Greater London, and it's home to hippos and giraffes and elephants, lions, warthogs, and Uganda cobs, which are like a form of antelope. It's just this oasis of, uh, it's a sanctuary for, for wildlife, and it's been protected for decades. Leslie traveled to Murchison Falls earlier this year to see firsthand how this oil project might impact the area. When you arrive in Murchison Falls National Park, you immediately see that there's this huge highway that cuts right through the middle uh, of the park. And in some places it's been finished, in some places it's still under construction. So you can see these bulldozers and this really noisy, heavy equipment that is just plowing right through the center of the park. Uh, Part of the reason this road is being built is to allow oil equipment and construction equipment to get inside the park more easily. Uh, And one very telling uh, indication is that this road doesn't have any speed bumps. And most highways in Uganda have a lot of speed bumps uh, as a safety measure, um, but not this one. A 
spokesperson for the French oil company developing this project, Total Energies, told the FT that the pipeline route was designed to minimize its environmental impact and avoid sensitive habitats as much as possible. Still, along with the environmental risks, there's another issue with the incoming pipeline, too. So for the people that live near these projects and near the pipeline, it is quite disruptive. This pipeline is being built in an area that has a lot of people living there already. In fact, there's more than 10,000 people who will be impacted by the construction of the project. And many will be forced to move. And the companies involved have offered compensation for the land. In some cases, that's been rejected. There have been a number of complaints about the level of compensation that's been offered to the landowners and the farmers that have been living there. So the question of what is the future of these displaced people is still a very big one. When Leslie traveled to Uganda, she met one of those people who disagreed with the amount of compensation he was offered. His name is Nelson Tibimanya. Nelson is a farmer, and he lives south of Murchison Falls National Park. He uh, works on the uh, land, the same farm that's been in his family, the land where he was born. Um, And the pipeline is going to pass right through his front uh, porch. So he's going to lose his house, and he was offered compensation by the companies uh, building the pipeline, but he felt like this was too low because they undervalued uh, his trees. And is this your forest? Yes, my forest. The wall. The wall is in there. It's mine. It's a big area. He took me on a walk through his uh, property and uh, through his farm, and he just showed me his trees, which had been growing there, and they were as big as, you know, telephone poles. He said they had been valued like trees that were uh, the sort that you would use in construction work, and and they had been valued as being smaller uh, than, than they were. And so he's rejected that compensation offer and has been going back and forth for years uh, since 2019, um, but uh, hasn't uh, gotten uh, an, a, a better offer. Even with all these complications, the governments of Uganda and Tanzania see the pipeline as a huge opportunity. I've spoken to Ugandan government officials and they say, look, this is our chance to develop and we deserve to have this opportunity for economic development just like you guys had in the West. And their argument is that the revenue that they get from selling oil will help Uganda to provide better social services and better infrastructure and even lower emissions. So today, Uganda imports most of its oil via Kenya, and that gets trucked in. So it has very high emissions. When Once this project is built, Uganda will become a producer of oil, of course, and there will be a small domestic refinery. So about a quarter of the oil that's produced from this project will be refined domestically and stay in Uganda at meeting its needs. So their argument is that this new, pr- new process will result in less emissions than the current system. But the environmentalists aren't buying this talk of lower emissions oil production. They've all come together in this loose coalition called Stop ECOP, which is kind of rhymes. And the Stop ECOP campaign has over a dozen different groups that contribute to it, support it, and are kind of loosely affiliated uh, with these efforts. And 
The reason that the campaign is so interesting is because it really targets the financial institutions that are involved with this project, both banks and insurers. And to me, this seems like kind of a a new model, you know, rather than throwing yourself in front of the bulldozer, uh, these groups are organizing a campaign to ask major banks not to fund this project and a campaign to ask big insurers not to insure this project. And so one by one, over the last couple of years, we've actually seen them have a degree of success. One member of this effort is Colleen Scott. Colleen's a legal and policy associate at a nonprofit called Inclusive Development International, or IDI. So ECOP is certainly not our first um, case using the follow the money approach. IDI was started um, in Cambodia. IDI started this approach when the co-founders of the organization were living in Cambodia, and Colleen says that they observed the government granting land concessions to various corporations, which displaced farmers and other communities. What they sort of discovered is that, you know, you can do so much work on the ground, looking at the project's impacts, engaging with the company that you see operating on the ground, engaging with the government, but you're hard-pressed to gain any traction just with doing that. What you really need to do is look beyond those immediate actors that you see on the ground and look internationally at the scope of of actors in the financial system that are really enabling the project and hold leverage over the project's success. And so that's when they started to sort of look at banks, actors like um, shareholders and companies looking at the supply chain to see which brands would eventually source from the project in question. And that's when the follow the money approach was created and launched. And since then, we've taken requests and researched more than 200 projects from around the world. Colleen says that IDI was eager to take what they call their follow the money approach and apply it to ECOP. That's because other campaigns that they've worked on in the past have been for things like mining projects that have been in existence for many years, whereas ECOP is still in the developmental stages now. So Colleen says that they started out by looking at the banks and other places that might provide funding or financial support to the oil companies that are actually building the oil project. We found that they plan to finance it with what's called a 60-40 debt-to-equity split. That means that 60% of the total cost will come in the form of a project loan provided by banks, and 40% of that cost will come from the equity investors. In this case, that's Total from France, um, Sinuk, the Chinese company, and the national oil companies of Uganda and Tanzania. And so we really focused in on this um, financing structure, and we essentially figured out that if we can stop this project loan, that's 60% of the total cost of the project. It would be really difficult, if not impossible, for the project sponsors to move ahead without that project loan. So that's when we got in touch with groups like BankTrack, which is um, a Dutch organization that focuses on commercial bank advocacy and we got them involved, um, and we started really launching this, this finance advocacy campaign targeting banks that we thought were the most likely actors to finance the project. Then Colleen says that they drew up a list of about 30 commercial banks that they knew had existing financial relationships with CNUC and Total. 
And we made that list because we figured, okay, if they're looking for banks to join this project loan, these are the most likely candidates that they'll approach to join the loan. And these are the most likely ones that would agree because they already are familiar with the project or with the, with the company. And so based on that list, that was our sort of universe of starting points where we started writing to those banks. Um, we started highlighting the risks, you know, familiarizing them with the project from our perspective and asking them to make a clear commitment that they would not finance the project. At first, Colleen says that it was pretty tough to get these banks to even respond, let alone actually make a commitment that they wouldn't provide financing for the project. I think most advocates who work in this space can tell you that the first response you will always get from a bank is, we can't talk about this. It's commercially sensitive. We can't comment on particular clients or particular projects. Um, But... You know, we've seen since then that they can and they will if they feel hard-pressed to do so. So with help from BankTrack and local partners in Uganda, in March of 2021, the first two commercial banks came out to publicly say that they wouldn't finance ECOP. And those banks were Barclays and Credit Suisse. Since then, Colleen says that they've been able to get a total of 20 banks to come out publicly to say that they won't finance the pipeline. And that includes major names like J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley. We publicized the list of banks that we were engaging with. So we created a massive campaign website, StopEcop.com. And on that website, we had a, a page dedicated to setting out who are the banks that we're targeting and what are their responses so far. So every time we reached out to them and got a response, we would publicize what they said to us and we would publicly track their position in relation to ECOP. And that served to sort of create public pressure, public visibility focused on the banks. Um, And ultimately, I think that that contributed to the success in getting so many banks to follow suit. Getting the banks to make a commitment isn't the only piece of this campaign, though. So the name is Omar El-Mawi. I work as the coordinator of the Stop East Africa Crude Oil Pipeline campaign. So the, this campaign is an important piece uh, for what I believe in, which is an Africa that is fossil free and the leapfrogs fossil fuels towards renewable, green renewable energy. Omar grew up in Kenya, but he says that once he found out about what was happening in Uganda with the oil pipeline, he decided he wanted to help people there fight against the production of this thing. His Stop ECOP campaign has focused on the banks, but there's another piece to this, too. Importantly, you know, the money is not everything that they need, but they also, because it's a risky project, it's going to cause huge devastating impact. Um, They will need an insurer to underwrite it. Major infrastructure projects like ECOP have insurance that covers risks, and that could include things like oil spills or construction risk. It's the reason why we've also targeted uh, different insurance companies uh, and insurers uh, to make sure that you know, this project never uh, gets the underwriting that it needs uh, for, for them to get the insurance to proceed with it. Omar says that the Stop ECOP campaign has targeted roughly two dozen insurers, and about a dozen have confirmed that they will not get involved with the project. But we do know that all of these commitments 
uh, and all of these some uh, all of these commitments that are being made it's not because you know these people are feeling sorry for the community but because they've done the assessments they've looked at all the arguments we've made and they've came to a pretty good position and landing where they've realized that being exposed to ecop is not the best uh way for them to continue with the work that they need to to do um so hopefully uh you know it, it can only the list can only grow longer going for, forward despite these efforts at least one major insurance company has signed on to support the project in may that's leslie again we reported at the ft in collaboration with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, that one of the biggest insurance groups in the world, Marsh McLennan, had actually signed on to provide reinsurance to this project. And they decided to do that in spite of the fact that they had employees asking them not to because of the significant environmental impacts and risks that the project presented. Um, But based on what we know today, the project is still progressing. The pipeline is going to be built. And when I visited the central processing facility in the Bulisa area of Uganda, you know, the ground was being prepared. There's trucks going in and out. You really get a sense that things are happening. And uh, this project appears to be going forward. But we don't know yet who will be funding it. By targeting these financial institutions, the campaigners are making it more difficult and more costly for this project to get backing and to get off the ground. Now, it's still not impossible, and it looks likely that this project will ultimately receive financing likely from Chinese banks, maybe Japanese banks, and African banks. We don't know who will end up financing it yet, but it does seem like they'll be able to access capital from other sources. Uh, But the campaign by targeting uh, financial institutions has made it more difficult and sort of more embarrassing, if you will, uh, to raise the the money they need uh, to develop this project and to build the pipeline. A spokesperson for Total told the FT that they're actively working on the project's financing with a pool of Western, Asian, and African banks. They said that they expect the financing process and due diligence to be completed later this year. Even if these efforts aren't successful for ECOP, Colleen Scott, who we met earlier, believes that this work has the potential to leave an impact on future projects down the line. I think, yes, you're seeing more and more projects, campaigns of this size and scale, really focusing in on that finance advocacy piece and realizing how crucial it is to ensure that the money is not in place for these projects to move forward. And I think that there's also a changing trend within the financial industry where banks and insurers are becoming more used to becoming targets of this sort of advocacy, and they're sensitive to to those risks. They don't want to be seen as, as the laggards in their industry. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. This episode was edited by John Buckley. Topher Forges and Manuela Zaragoza are our executive producers. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.